Great to have you with us today on the Cover Crop Strategies podcast. I'm your host, Noah Newman, Associate Editor. Got some great stuff coming your way. Before we get started, though, let's share a message from our sponsor, Verdesian Life Sciences. At Verdesian Life Sciences, we believe that supplying healthy water and soil for the next generation is just as important as supplying efficient nutrients for every crop farmers grow. For us, sustainability and profitability go hand in hand. That's why we call ourselves the Nutrient Use Efficiency People. We have dedicated ourselves to providing prescriptive nutrient use efficiency solutions that improve plant uptake and reduce fertilizer losses, helping preserve the environment and make the most of your investment. Learn more at VLSCI.com or talk to your ag retailer today about Verdesian products. All right, this week we're headed to the great state of Ohio to catch up with Dusty Sonnenberg, owner and operator of Sonnenberg Farms and JCAF Ranch in Henry County. Not only is Dusty a huge Buckeyes fan, but the Ohio State grad is also a big fan of cover crops. On this episode of the podcast, Dusty shares how cereal rye, canola, rapeseed, and oats are paying off big time in this operation, especially when it comes to dealing with those dry spells in Northwest Ohio. And when Dusty's not farming, he's talking to farmers as a broadcaster and writer for Ohio Agnet. We'll get his thoughts and observations on the latest cover cropping trends. Without further ado, here's Dusty. So my name is Dusty Sonnenberg, and I'm a farmer in Henry County, which is northwest Ohio. We raise corn, soybeans, wheat, and alfalfa. We also have a replacement dairy heifer operation and raise dairy steers for freezer beef. And grew up on the family farm that actually uh, was, I guess, originally purchased back in 1882 by my great-great-grandfather. So I tell people that I'm a first-generation farmer on a fifth-generation farm. I grew up on the farm, but my parents actually uh, sold the, the building site, the homestead, and uh, moved off the farm when I was in junior high, gone into high school. And so... Uh, about 20 years later, after college and working in the agriculture industry, I was able to purchase that property back, and uh, we have since uh, continued the farming operation. So Grandpa retained some of the farm ground, but we now have it all back together and are running full steam. Um, we've been doing no-till, actually, uh, for probably since the late 80s. My grandfather started uh, initially experimenting with it, uh, sort of in rotation with some conventional tillage and other things. When I came back to the farm in the, I guess it was probably the early to mid-2000s when I first uh, sort of took over the operation. Uh, we went all no-till uh, except for our corn, so we do no-till soybeans, we no-till in the wheat obviously into the beans, and then we'll do strip tillage when we plant corn. And uh, in those strips, if the fertilizer or soil test recommendations call for it, we will apply fertilizer uh, down about eight inches when we're initially making that strip in the fall, and then come back in the spring and plant the corn into that. Uh, obviously, to get the alfalfa started, that required some tillage, but otherwise, uh, you know, then it's uh, no activity for the next four to five years as that crop goes through its tenure. So we've been no-tilling for quite a while, and then probably it's been, I would have to say, six or seven years ago when we started experimenting a little bit with cover crops and started just with rye and actually did it sort of as a hybrid cover. Obviously, we would plant that in the fall and it would overwinter and then worked with a neighbor who has a straw business. He would actually come in and uh, allow that to uh, just after pollination come in and cut it so that it's at its sort of peak height and brightness for the, the straw market that he had. And then we would go through as soon as that was off in sort of mid to late 
late June and no-till soybeans into it. We did that for a while. Now we've sort of adapted more to uh, with the other crops and going with a true uh, maybe cover crop rotation uh, using cereal rye. We've also used some um, canola or rapeseed uh, in some mixes as well as oats, uh, which gives us both the oats would be a crop that winter kills, but the uh, rapeseed or the canola would be an overwintering crop. And so that gives us some different activity going on, uh, more so in the fall, but also then overwinter and into the spring. And we've liked the results we've seen. Yeah, talking about those results a little bit, what, what are some of the most noticeable benefits you've seen since you started using cover crops? Well, I think we farm a uh, uh, clay, basically. It's Hoytville clay with uh, sort of a knoll that runs through the farm, which is Napanee, which is an even heavier clay. And what we've seen is uh, sort of the water capacity of that soil increase. I think is a combination of using livestock manure, using no-till, and then uh, just sort of the third part of that trifecta is with the cover crops, we've increased the infiltration of some of those tight soils. Uh, when we have the oats and we have the wheat and we have the rye in the rotation, those grass crops, those those uh, small but shallow roots really seem to do a nice job uh, helping with that top surface layer of soil. And then with some of the other cover crops and, and other crops, that we raise, I think those penetrate a little bit deeper with their root systems and also help sort of open that soil up. The other thing we found is uh, using both cover crops and no-till is we've really increased our earthworm population and the number of night crawlers out there uh, just about any time of year, but especially in the spring and fall, it seems like we find it more. If you go out with a spade, about anywhere you stick it in the ground and pull up a spade full of dirt, you'll find at least one to two night crawlers or earthworms in that. And so that tells us that we know we've got a lot of biological activity going on. We've got soil life, soil health there. And so that water uh, gets into the soil and, and does what we need it to uh, rather than running off and you know carrying some of the nutrients away with it. We found too that uh, really water management has become very important on our farm, both uh, because of the heavy clays uh, previous to a lot of the work we had done. The main goal was getting rid of water. And so we're systematically pattern tiled uh, every 30 feet across the farm with water control structures installed a couple places on that. Uh, the idea is get as much of that water off as, as timely as possible when we have that growing crop, especially in the spring, so we can get that crop planted. Uh, but then we found, especially probably the last five to seven years, the weather patterns have shifted a little bit in our immediate area that we seem to be uh, typically catching a drought from about mid-June through mid-August. And so finding a way to, you know, get rid of that water right away in the spring so we can dry out and get the crop in the ground. But then as soon as we do, sort of shutting that tile system down, holding back any water we get after that to sort of retain it to help those plants make it through the hot, dry summer has been a key. And so I think the soil health that we've seen improve, as well as water management with those control structures, has, has definitely made a difference. Yeah, it seems like they're really paying off for you. And I paid you a visit uh, last week and you're telling me how dry you were there. And it seems like weather is always a, a, a big challenge in Ohio. So so how, how would weather affect the uh, planting dates for cover crops? Does it, does it differ every year or is there usually a target date where you want to get your cover crops in? Well, it really varies by the crop, at least in this part of the world. Now, fortunately, you know, there's a, the sooner you can plant your cover crops, the wider window you have 
of uh, different types of crops you can put into a mix. So around here, a lot of folks that uh, do cover crops and do cover crop mixes like to get those in shortly after the wheat is harvested, just to be able to uh, have more opportunity for a variety of crops to be able to germinate and get established before they would kill off in the winter months. One of our concerns going into uh, the last couple weeks was it was excessively dry. We went from a very wet spring to uh, virtually no water coming down in the month of June. And so that was really concerning. We got through that and actually uh, since the week, well, I guess Friday, uh, we started the rain sprinkles came through and we've had about an inch and a half since then on our farm, which is just ideal for the guys that got the wheat off early and got some of those cover crops in. The other big question this year, obviously, with the prices is double cropping beans. We're far enough north. We typically don't see a lot of that go on, uh, but with the market incentives that are out there, as well as uh, sort of an earlier than normal wheat harvest for us, that has led some guys to double crop beans and now this moisture will definitely help that. The other thing I think that plays in is technically the soybeans can count as a cover crop for some of the government programs that are out there. And so even if those beans get planted late and for some reason they aren't able to mature proper, if they can't necessarily harvest them for the cash crop, uh, there may be some incentives there to uh, do it anyways, just from a cover cropping standpoint. Uh, In our neck of the woods here in Wisconsin, we're seeing a Several people are taking on the practice of uh, planting green. Now, I know you told me you haven't done that yet, but you're, you're thinking about possibly doing it. And I remember you telling me that some of your neighbors have planted green. Uh, what kind of success have they had with it and what potential benefits uh, do you see from planting green? You said it exactly. I've I've looked at it. I've observed it from afar and from close. I just haven't pulled the trigger yet. I have a neighbor uh, right next to me. And honestly, he probably has the best looking field of soybeans in the county right now. And that was a field that was planted green. Uh, He's done it with corn also. He's been, uh, I would say, one of the, not pioneers, but much longer term working with uh, no-till and cover crops than most of the guys in the area. And he's been a bit of a risk taker, too. He's had some years where maybe it hasn't worked as well. Uh, He's gone through the struggles that a lot of folks do with trying to get the equipment set up right so you don't get wrapping and, and some of the tangling when you plant when it is still green and sort of that concern of when do you terminate, when's it going to become a weed versus uh, an asset. Um, he's worked through that and he's done very well. Now, it's he's definitely had his ups and downs. Like I said, there have been some years that have been more challenging than others. But I think the advantage is, um, you know, in the spring, that cover crop, instead of being terminated, is still pulling a little bit of that excess moisture out of the soil. So the ground may be fit just a little bit sooner. It's providing weed control or suppressing some of the weeds from emerging. And then when it comes to when it comes to terminating it, you know, he'll wait until that that crop is just about to emerge or maybe even depending on what he's used as a cover. Once that cash crop has emerged, he'll come in with his burn down and uh burn it back off and had a lot of success, both in terms of weed control and suppression. Uh, Also, like I said, getting out there maybe a little sooner to get that planted and then just uh, conserving moisture really once that cover crop lays down and and creates almost like a mulch for them. So a lot of good things that I've seen with it. There are some guys in the area that have had issues. Uh, We've had issues with slugs. Uh, Some guys have had issues with voles when those crops are left out there too long. But in general, um, most of the guys local, if they can, can sort of fight through the initial challenges of figuring out how, how to get their equipment set up uh, to manage all that, that, I guess, residue, for lack of better terms, uh, it's been pretty successful. 
More from Dusty in just a second, but once again, let's take some time to thank our sponsor, Verdesian Life Sciences, and they have a special message for you. At Verdesian Life Sciences, we believe that supplying healthy water and soil for the next generation is just as important as supplying efficient nutrients for every crop farmers grow. For us, sustainability and profitability go hand in hand. That's why we call ourselves the Nutrient Use Efficiency People. We have dedicated ourselves to providing prescriptive nutrient use efficiency solutions that improve plant uptake and reduce fertilizer losses, helping preserve the environment and make the most of your investment. Learn more at VLSCI.com or talk to your ag retailer today about Verdesian products. Now, back to the podcast. A lot of our listeners are obviously interested in equipment. They like hearing what kind of equipment people are using in their operations. So, so I'll ask you, uh, what, what kind of equipment do you use? Ours is sort of a uh, low capital or not very capital intense operation. We have a 15-foot tie no-till drill, and that's what we use for 90% of what we do. So we can use that to obviously plant our soybeans. We use it to plant our wheat. If we're doing cover crops, whether it's the rye or the oats or we're doing a mix, we'll use that for those as well. So that's sort of a multi-purpose tool. You know, The only other one, then when we plant corn, I just contract with a neighbor who does a little bit of custom work and he'll come in and do the custom strip till for us he'll also come in and custom plant he has a a corn planter that he has uh tripped out pretty well with all the latest technology and so that is nice uh, being able to allow him to utilize that on a few more acres and it helps out uh what we do as well so so most of what we do from from the cover cropping and regular cropping standpoint all runs through that 15 foot tie drill Gotcha. Now, I know you talk to a lot of people uh, with you all on top of being a farmer. You're also a broadcaster. I'm sure people could probably tell just by uh, hearing your voice. You know, you have that broadcast voice. But just in talking to people in Ohio uh, with their, about their experiences using cover crops, what have you learned in recent years, would you say? Is, is there anything that sticks out in terms of just maybe new trends with cover crops or, or a new species or anything off the top of your head you could think of? Sure. You know, from an adoption rate, patience is probably the key. I think one of the frustrations that some um, maybe long-term cover croppers have is they'll see a a government program come out that incentivizes folks to do cover crops and there's cost share or, or, you know, maybe some other assistance available and folks will jump in and try it for a year maybe two years if the payments are still there. And then as soon as those payments dry up, you know, they're back to their conventional tillage or, or whatever else they may be doing. And in some cases, it may just be that the, you know, the cover cropping or the no-till wasn't the right fit for operations. It is unique to every farm and, and every field, how those are managed. But for a lot of them, I think to truly see the benefits, you have to be committed and it takes more than a year or two to see a big difference. Now, there are probably rare exceptions where it's a, a unique environment or weather year or something else where that's just the year that, boy, cover crops were the home run. Um, but all in all, to see that total shift in the environment of your soil, the microbes, the soil health, the biological activity, all the, the benefits, I think, that actually come long term from no-till and cover cropping 
it just takes time and patience. And, and there is that little bit of a dip in the curve. You may see a slight decline for a short term in yields or some other challenges. Hopefully some of that maybe is being offset by uh, the reduced cost of not having the tillage and, and maybe not having to have as much equipment uh, for tillage and bigger equipment like that as you would. On the flip side, uh, I know for some folks, just the cost of the seed has been a deterrent. Cover crop seed is sometimes difficult to find. It's in short supply if the demand is high and uh, it's not cheap. And so it's it's sometimes hard uh, to swallow that pill that I'm paying for seed to put out there that I know I am not going to get an immediate you know return on that investment. So those are some of the challenges uh, that I think folks have seen. But all in all, it, it seems like it's segmented. Different parts of Ohio, there's a lot more of it that goes on than other parts. And I think, again, some of that is due to the unique climate, environmental conditions of that area. Some of it is just due to the nature and philosophy of the farmers that are in that area. And some is due to uh, just sort of having that guy that's willing to think outside the box and, and take that risk and, and maybe have some success with it. And others see that and then slowly look at adopting it as well. So it's really a combination. Yeah, it seems like there's a lot of factors to consider. And, you know, what, what might work for one operation might not work for another. So um, anyways, I was I was doing some research for a project I'm working on, and I saw that uh, the most recent census of uh, agriculture census, it showed that uh, the total amount of cover cropping acres went up by 50%, like a considerable jump from 2012 to 2017. When the next census comes out, would you expect that number to jump even higher? I do. I, I do think it will be higher, at least locally, I'm sure it will be. And I think in Ohio, I would guess statewide it will be. And again, a combination of factors do that. Um, uh, depending on where your listeners are at, some may have heard or not, Ohio has had a, a big push when it comes to water quality and nutrient management type subjects uh, with Lake Erie and the Western Lake Erie Basin having an algal bloom issue. And so there have been literally millions of dollars thrown at this problem and thrown at agriculture to find different practices to try and reduce that and cover crops has been a huge part of that and so there have been uh, a lot of cost sharing incentives for folks to uh, try and manage the resources better with that so I think in you know an 18 to 20 I think it's 20 plus counties now that are a part of that uh, watershed area that they consider and have additional funding that has definitely shown an increase in the adoption rates of using cover crops it's uh, really a total systems approach you know from the soil Oil testing, creating nutrient management plans, planning your cropping rotations. And then as you do that, looking at where are the benefits of adding cover crops and different practices. And so I think it's that total systems approach that, that is going to make a positive difference for those concerns. When it comes, though, to adoption uh, beyond that footprint, I think it's, again, as, as more uh, – Cover crop seed companies are out there promoting their products as more farmers are having success. More programs like your podcast and the articles you write uh, sort of share the story or share the message, if you will. That does a lot of good things. Uh, I'm a part of a program that the Nature Conservancy hosts called Farmer Advocates for Conservation. And in it, we take a look sort of 360 degrees, if you will, at uh, what it takes for soil health and, and improving the environment around that. And so uh, no-till conservation tillage practices and cover crops have been a huge part of that. And I've had the opportunity through that program to meet a number of farmers across the state of Ohio, primarily in the northwest corner where I'm at, but, but some from further away, and really learn from their experiences. And uh, it's sort of exciting to see 
uh, some of the things going on out there, uh, 15, 16, 17 way uh, cover crop mixes, meaning that many different species all in the same blend that are being planted and going out and visiting those farms and looking across the field. And it's just it's interesting to see sort of that Duke's mix of different different crops that have emerged at different stages and, and then digging them up and looking at what those different root systems look like and what they're doing to the soil, what the biological activity is around them. Um, and then as they go through in the spring and plan into that, just seeing the, the texture of that soil and how some of the farms have really changed and improved, it's, it's really neat. And I think it's things like that that have encouraged other folks to take a look and adopt. Yeah, that's very interesting. Wow, 15 to 16 species in a mix. That's a lot. I know you said you started with cereal rye and you've kind of evolved to using multiple species now. Is there anything new you're looking to try in the, in the near future? Maybe add a new species or try something new? Yeah, there are some different things out there. I haven't exactly put my thumb on which direction I want to go, but but the more I read and the more I talk to folks that are doing multi-species mixes, uh, there's a lot of good things that are coming out of them. The biggest concern, and it's one that I would share with most farmers, is what if there is a issue uh, with terminating it or if it, you know, it, it gets beyond where I can't get a chemical application. Annual ryegrass is one early on that always concerned folks that they let it go a little bit too long and then it really became difficult to control and then it became more of a weed and a competitor in the field. And so, you know, learning how to manage around that and, and getting out there early to, to terminate that cover crop and, and do it in a way that you're taking it serious, you aren't cutting rates was what a lot of guys finally came to. And I think everybody has to get their different comfort levels, especially you add different uh, different crops into that cover crop mix. Each one's going to terminate a little bit differently. And so what does it take to do that? And then unfortunately, again, that's another, uh, if it's not a winter kill type cover crop, it's an additional expense with chemistries. And we all know that those are uh, in some cases in short supply and expensive to get. So figuring out how you do that. Now, on the plus side or the flip side to that, uh, a lot of folks are claiming they see a lot more suppression of weeds. So maybe what your chemistry mix is to terminate the cover crops is cheaper than what you would have to use to uh, burn down and terminate whatever your weed pressure is. So a lot of different things there. But I've really early on leaned towards those that would winter kill uh, just to avoid that situation. But the problem is then you don't have something out there early spring still working for you in the soil because it sort of terminated with the, the killing frost that we see in, in late November and into December. Well, Dusty, this has been a great conversation. Uh, anything else you'd like to add before we let you go? I would just say that if anybody is considering looking at uh, cover crops, that it really does have to be a uh, total analysis of your operation before you jump into it. Uh, you, what is it that you really want to accomplish with them uh, before you take that plunge? And, you know, from the soil test on up, what does your soils have? What needs changed? Uh, probably the one piece of advice that I was given that I think is the most beneficial is if you're going to plant cover crops, you need to be as serious about it as you do with your cash crops. Uh, just throwing some seed out there and, and hoping that it 
have a, a change in your soil structure, uh, that's probably not the best way to go about it. Uh, those guys that are serious about it are, are retrofitting their equipment to do it in a way that they can effectively get that seed placed, have good seed to soil contact. They're trying to plant it in a timely fashion that it will have the, the most likelihood of success in getting established and getting that root system out there. And then they're managing it accordingly, you know, on both ends. And so I think that's, that's an important thing is if you're going to do it, make sure you understand why you're doing it, be committed to it and, uh, and then do it right and uh, be patient because uh, as we all know, a lot of things in agriculture take a lot of patience. Once again, thanks to Dusty Sonnenberg for joining us on this edition of Cover Crop Strategies. Brought to you by Verdesian Life Sciences. And once again, let's share their message. At Verdesian Life Sciences, we believe that supplying healthy water and soil for the next generation is just as important as supplying efficient nutrients for every crop farmers grow. For us, sustainability and profitability go hand in hand. That's why we call ourselves the Nutrient Use Efficiency People. We have dedicated ourselves to providing prescriptive nutrient use efficiency solutions that improve plant uptake and reduce fertilizer losses, helping preserve the environment and make the most of your investment. Learn more at VLSCI.com or talk to your ag retailer today about Verdesian products. Thanks again for joining us on this week's edition of Cover Crop Strategies. I'm your host, Noah Newman, Associate Editor. And remember, until next time, for all things cover crops, head to CoverCropStrategies.com.